Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we bring season three of Queen of the Sciences to an end with the book of Revelation. That's right, folks. It's Revelation without an S. It is a word in the singular. For God's sake, never again say the book of Revelations. It's just one revelation. And dad, what is that revelation of? Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's it. That is what this book is about. It is not about the end times or zombies or how to get revenge on your wicked neighbors, however much they may deserve it. So uh, in this episode, we will be talking about why this book causes so much trouble, has always caused trouble, almost didn't make it into the canon, and yet why we love it and treasure it and think it is well worth the time and attention even of contemporary Christians who have been made very suspicious by a certain set of novels, which shall remain unnamed. (laughs) Uh, Let's just leave that behind, Sarah. (laughs) That's a great idea. (laughs) All right. Well, let's begin with uh, Revelation's rough uh, course into the canon of Holy Scripture. Dad, do you have some comments to make on that? Well, it's true that the book of Revelation had a difficult time getting accepted into the Christian canon. I think probably for a number of reasons. It's it's rather late uh, developing in the um, uh, at the end of the first Christian century. So it's a much it's a later book, and uh, it was it, apparently it was not well known outside of uh, the circles in Asia what we call today Asia Minor, this, the seven churches to which it was originally addressed. So it, it's, its spread was slow. It got associated with the, the Montanist heresy, uh, the new prophecy that was developing uh, in that very same part of the world in modern-day Turkey, uh, which was a kind of a, a spiritualism Uh, advocating new revelations um, and so forth. And so revelation was associated with that and fell under suspicion that way. But I think all those other factors aside, it's simply the sometimes indecipherable content of the book, uh, which put it under suspicion. Uh, In the end, the fact that this apocalypse of Jesus Christ brought the canonical collection which began in Genesis and then traced the history of God's saving ways with Israel and through the one Israelite, Jesus Christ, on to the ends of the earth. Uh, Revelation formed a fitting conclusion uh, to the canonical collection, as it were, telling the story of the world from God's point of view from Genesis to the book of Revelation. So eventually it did find its way into the canon. But even being admitted to the canon, Sarah, uh, it's always been a disputed book uh, held at arm's length in certain circles of the church uh, and just as passionately embraced in other circles. Yeah, I think there are some of the the little tiny churches that survive from very early on. I don't know if it's the Maronites or one of those, you know, sort of Middle Eastern 
barely surviving churches, but I think a few of them don't accept Revelation still as canonical. Um, though, you know, East the as we know them, the Eastern and Western churches both ultimately did. You know, it was actually the book ending that first made me decide that Revelation was okay. <laughs> because like, what if it just ended with Jude? I, I mean, I'm quite fond of the book of Jude, but that's no way to end, end a story. <laughs> and... Um, even if you don't like, say, the first 19 chapters of Revelation, the last few are an absolutely necessary bookend to Genesis and everything that comes in between. And since, you know, as we so often talk about God's kind of history and God's forward movement in time and the fact that we are historical beings, to have a story that doesn't have some kind of forecasting of how it will all turn out, I think would be an immense impoverishment of the story as we know it. So I think that is is valuable immensely. Yes, I think so. It's not so much the end of the world as the end for which God created the world. Uh, As theologians as diverse as Jonathan Edwards and his near contemporary uh, Gottfried Leibniz uh, on the continent would both affirm in different ways the end for which God created the world, which has as its correlate the idea Um, of the incision uh, of God's saving action, like a knife cutting through the fog and darkness and confusion that prevails on planet Earth, an incision, uh, which is not the end of time, but the time of the end, the end for which God created the world, the time of the end breaking into the here and now, Uh, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think that brings us to two more absolutely essential points in interpreting Revelation. One is that you really do have to read it canonically. You cannot read it as a standalone book. It is the last book. It serves a particular function, but it has to be interpreted with Genesis and John and all the other books in mind, very much in mind. And secondly, it's also, as you just said, it's of the genre of apocalypse, which means it's also not a standalone in that respect. There are other apocalyptic books and sections of books within the whole Bible. Uh, Daniel in the Old Testament is in some ways the most famous and probably the most troublesome of Old Testament apocalyptic texts. I I have definitely heard some weird stuff done with Daniel over the years. But, you know, the Gospel of Mark, of course, has, you know, the little apocalypse of chapter 13, and it's the subtext of so much of what Paul does. So, um, again, it's Revelation is particularly weird in a lot of ways, but it's not utterly unlike other things in the scripture and has to be interpreted that way. In fact, Sarah, you can't make any sense of Revelation at all unless you pick up the numerous, innumerable ways in which the book uh, is picking up on uh, with all sorts of allusions to the scriptures of Israel and to the early tradition of, of, the, of the Christian church. Uh, those, it's what we call nowadays intertextuality. Uh, there's so much uh, taking up of motifs, ideas, images, symbols, uh, uh, and not just from the so-called apocalyptic genre, uh, but much of the scripture is being taken up and being um, uh, uh, retooled, repurposed, uh, utilized, interpreted in the book of Revelation. 
one of the commentators that I read said that actually there are no direct word-for-word quotes in Revelation, but that's very misleading because there's hardly a word of Revelation that is not elusive to something that's already that's there. Right. And the you know uh, an important distinction from the other apocalyptic literature that we know, like the Book of Daniel, we know that this liter uh, and the Qumran writings is and various. Uh, uh, pseudepigrapha um, in the from the um, Second Temple period, uh, all of these apocalypses in the genre of apocalyptic are written anonymously in the name of some ancient person, Enoch, you know, or or Ezra, Ezra, Ezra or something like that. But the writer of this apocalypse uh, gives us his own concrete historical name. He's a Christian prisoner named John exiled to the island of Patmos off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And so this gives his apocalypse a real setting in real history. That is a very interesting difference. And I think that uh, tells us also how how important it is to see Revelation as a book addressed to the persecuted, because it appears that John is on Patmos because of his belief in Jesus. And he is, is writing really for people who are suffering and struggling. And it seems to me that... Um, the worst readings of Revelation are written out of comfort and curiosity. And uh, and yeah. I, I should say, in all fairness, that um, I live a life of comfort and curiosity, so there's a big old asterisk. <laughs> but um, I'm trying to learn the lesson that this is this is not um, meant primarily for me, as in a, in a way that I'm sort of canonically invited to eavesdrop on what's going on here. But I'll also say that the address to the persecuted has its own limits and caveats. Um, this is not a, even for its its reputation, this is not a self-indulgent book for the resentful. <laughs> this is really, this is a hard message also to the persecuted. It is, it is a, a genuinely hopeful one, but it is not an easy one. And I think we'll unpack that as we go along. I think so too. I think that, you know, I, this lesson was really driven home to me when I wrote the commentary on the book of Joshua and uh, realized that its first audience was uh, the post-exilic community that had lost the land once given to their ancestors. And the book, therefore, has to be read in the perspective of those first hearers, readers of the book, who would be aware of the enormous irony. And so here you have, likewise, in the book of Revelation, a book that needs to be read, as Bonhoeffer said, from the underside of history, uh, from the perspective of the persecuted and the martyrs, uh, John of Patmos himself being a confessor of the faith. And that, I think, is hermeneutically important. It's important for interpretation, uh, that you at least imaginatively enter into solidarity uh, with those who are being beheaded, uh, as the book says, for their confession of Jesus as Lord. Yeah. Okay, well, speaking of Jesus as Lord, let's move on now to the kind of reviewing the content and theology of the book. And I think at the end, we need to come back with uh, good and bad ways to interpret Revelation for our time and place. Okay. Keying off that historical starting point, let's begin, Sarah, tell us about the letters uh, that the reveal the revelation of Jesus Christ sends to the seven churches uh, at the beginning of the book. 
Right. So this is maybe one of the uh, most overlooked features in a way. The first three chapters of Revelation are letters, as you said, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And they're somehow symbolic of the whole church and yet addressed to these seven particular churches. And I think that shift between the universal and particular focus is very important to what Revelation and, in fact, all good literature does. Um, it's only after that that we start getting the vision with all of the weird stuff. Um, the seven letters, they are structurally very similar to each other. They state the city in which the church is placed. And then there is a special word given to each one. So some are charged with their failures and collusions with evil. Sometimes the evildoers are mentioned by name. Um, other times they are praised um, for their courage and faith and then given a little nudge to do better. Uh, Laodicea, most famously, is the lukewarm one that falls right in the middle. And somehow the Lord dislikes that even more than the collusion, it seems. Um, but it definitely keeps us grounded in the reality of church life, that that is the launching point um, from which we take off into these wild heavenly visions. And I, I think that's a really important corrective always to be saying that in some ways, each congregation is a locus of the revelation of Jesus Christ and that each congregation is different. It's quite interesting that there's not like this uh, hom homogeneity or cookie quote cutter quality to church life, but it really does vary from place to place and each has its own thing to struggle with. And the line between the um, infidelity of complicity uh, with the evil empire, uh, as the book of Revelation will go on to exposit, and um, the necessary coexistence with it um, in terms of um, making your living and feeding your bellies and uh, keeping a shelter over your head and clothing on your back. Uh, what is that line between complicity uh, and the sinful complicity and necessary uh, cohabitation uh, in this time between the uh, coming of uh, first coming of Jesus Christ and his ultimate uh, victory? What is that fine line? And the seven letters are trying to parse that, aren't they? And they each uh, have like a, a special promise, like one is supposed to get a white stone with a name written on it that no one has ever heard and, and things like that. So there's there's always this kind of encouragement saying, actually, it can be done. You do not need to withdraw. I, I think a lot of the, the dangerous interpretations of Revelation are utter separation between the holy and the unholy. But um Revelation keeps prodding the churches forward in their life here in this earth while they're while they're waiting it out. And how many over the centuries, how many have taken special comfort from some of the promises in these letters? Uh, I just would add, like to add a personal note you might find interesting. My mother's confirmation verse was, Be faithful to death and I will give you a crown of life from the letters to the seven congregations. And in fact, that uh, verse is uh, inscribed upon her tombstone, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. And in a life that she lived, which I don't think was overtly apocalyptic, the way the book of Revelation describes. Except having five little boys. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That was enough of a apocalyptic crisis for her uh, in life, I suppose. Okay. Anyway, anyway, the verse has played less dramatic but powerfully 
uh, 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 encouraging and comforting roles in the lives of individual Christians. Certainly. And I, I do very much remember that verse I was struck by. It was probably actually literally the first time Revelation ever crossed my consciousness is seeing that engraved on her tombstone. I didn't know it was her confirmation verse before that. All right. Well, um, one of my uh, favorite interpreters of, of this book, uh, Joseph Mangina, who wrote a commentary also for the, the Brazo series that your Joshua commentary is in, he, he picking up on the work of another scholar, divides the book of Revelation into four scrolls, because, you know, that was they had scrolls back then, not codices, which is what we call a book today. And uh, so the first three chapters he calls the letter scroll. And then we have three more scrolls to follow. In chapters 4 through 11, we have the worship scr- scroll um, in which we see the heavenly worship of Jesus. And it kind of alternates with earthly disasters. And then in chapters 12 to 20, we have the war scroll, which actually is the whole thing over again. <laughs> it's it's in a way a, a retelling of the the worship scroll, but from a different perspective, which is actually the, the Jesus going to war. So in, in uh, the, I guess you could say in the letter scroll, Jesus functions as a prophet because he's addressing these churches. And then in the worship scroll, Jesus is the priest because he is the, the center of worship in the heavenly temple. And then in the war scroll, Jesus is the king who does final battle against the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, death and Hades, and puts an end to them forever. And then in the last two chapters, 21 and 22, we get the wedding scroll in which Jesus becomes the bridegroom and is betrothed um, and takes uh, takes all of his faithful to a honeymoon in the New Jerusalem forever and ever. That's very that's very cool. That's the Munis triplex, the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. That then that culminates in the a bridegroom at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Yeah, very cool. I think we should add that fourth office of bridegroom. I think nowadays people find that a little weird, but I think it's important to the overall message of, of Scripture. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And maybe the bridegroom is kind of a synthesis of the preceding three. Uh, I have to think about that. But the, the, the this reading, though, Sarah, if, the, if these are three repetitions or four repetitions telling the same s- story, from different angles or perspectives. One of the meanings of that is that it's a mistake to try to read the book of Revelation in a linear fashion. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say it isn't four repetitions of the same story. It's more like four repetitions of the same Jesus. Um, And, you know, Ah, Yeah, so you know, like the, the we we get the figures for um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of like the 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 man, the lion, the eagle, and the ox. I didn't get those in the right, right order, but that's from Ezekiel, and then it's repeated in Revelation. And so, and in Ezekiel, it's this a very it's like not three D, it's like four D or five D. <laughs> like God has this crazy chariot where the wheels go in all directions at once, and yet it proceeds. And so I think that's kind of like what we're we're getting the stereoscopic vision of Jesus. So we have him first in his address to congregations now, and then we see the same Jesus told again as the priest, and then the same. Jesus told again as the warrior, and then the same Jesus told again as the bridegroom. And so, as you say, it is not a linear story. It's kind of an always doubling back or looping around or spiraling closer to the center or something like that. And of course, that's one of the reasons why it's so desperately mistaken to try to get a chronological timeline from our very 
I mean, I know that uh, space-time is supposed to be four dimensions, but as creatures experience, it's like little better than a line because we can only go forward and in one direction. <laughs> and the time of revelation is so much more complex than that. So again, the, the timeline approach is totally mistaken. But I think what it, 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 it does instead is it allows you, the reader, and you, the church, to be able to see all the different very competing and confusing things that are really going on in your life. Like you really are having ordinary human life and you are having this participation in heavenly worship and you are seeing the real battles and you're feeling detecting these battles being fought around you. And somehow you are also partaking in heavenly hope and, and comfort of, of the final story. So I, I think it's an Weirdly enough, I'm going to say revelation is truer to life because we always feel these multiple layers of things happening. And revelation is a way of kind of parsing out all of them, but assigning all of them ultimately to Jesus' sovereignty. Right. And I, I think also Jesus himself is uh, presented or represented throughout these cycles or scrolls uh, as a very curious figure, the lion who appears as a lamb. Isn't that right? Yeah. So this is, well, actually, let, let me take you through. I, I made a little list of all the different ways Jesus is um, titled or described in Revelation. And it's it's amazing. It's extravagant. Um, and th this is what theologically sold me on, on Revelation rather than only its important feature as a bookend to the Bible. So Jesus is called Faithful Witness, Firstborn of the Dead, Ruler of the Kings of the Earth, the First and the Last, the Living One, Alive Forevermore, Son of God, the Amen. I love that. The Amen. Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David, Lamb who was slain, Word of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Beginning and the End, the Bright Morning Star. And these wow. just kind of like slip and slide all over each other. There's no attempt to um, keep them strictly segregated. And here, this this I think is the most um, extraordinary for me, one of all. Um, those of you who are fans of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe may know that um, The Lion of the Tribe of Judah it was part of uh, C.S. Lewis's inspiration for making Aslan a lion in those stories. And Aslan is clearly a figure of Christ. And... Um, so um, so in chapter five, John is um, weeping that there's this seven sealed scroll and no one has been found worthy to open it. But then an elder comforts him and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So at this point, you are expecting this lion who has conquered the warrior to come bounding forth and slash open the seals, sealed scrolls with his paws. But when this lion makes his entrance, he's actually a lamb. And not only he's a lamb, but he's standing as though it had been slain. What on earth does that mean? With seven horns and seven eyes. So looking like a horrible science experiment gone awry. Um, <laughs> but, 
But I mean, I think that that is such an amazing, vivid way of making the point that our Lord conquers by dying rather than by subjecting others to death. You know, he does not come as the warrior who kills and routs the sinners or the Romans or the hypocrites or whatever, but actually he's the one who goes to death. And so you have this lamb standing as though it had been slain from the foundation of the world. That actually is the exact same figure as the lion who has conquered and is worthy to open the the scroll. So again, it's like that stereoscopic vision. You're able to see with more than one perspective the same uh, mega reality that is Jesus. One, uh, uh, I think, very important theological comment to make at just this juncture is that the book of Revelation proclaims Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What an interesting uh, expression that is, because it would then once again reinforce the idea that Jesus and his, with the incarnation and his cross and resurrection, is not God's second thought. Gee, Adam sinned. Now what I do? Rather, Jesus and his incarnation, his cross and resurrection, from the beginning is God's first thought. God creates the world with a view to its redemption and fulfillment through Jesus Christ and his spirit. And I think that is all that can be drawn out of that affirmation, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, a counsel of God which was actualized in time, but in a counsel which is Alpha and Omega. Yeah, I love that. I think that's wonderful. And another one of these kind of um, mega moments or or telescoped realities that takes place is when um, we get the figure of the woman, uh, the good one, not the whore of Babylon. <laughs> There, so there's the, the woman um, clothed with the sun, who is beautiful, radiant, has 12 stars around her. And so symbolically in Revelation, that means she represents both uh, Israel because of the 12 tribes and the church because of the 12 apostles. Uh, 12 repeats itself, of course, in the New Jerusalem, which has 12 gates uh, guarded each by an apostle. And um, so and as the hinge between Israel and the church, she also is a figure of Mary. But then in the actually the way the story is told about her, um, she is pregnant with the child and to with a miraculous child and giving birth to the child. And then immediately the child is swept up into heaven to avoid the clutches of the dragon. So you kind of have like Jesus incarnation, birth, resurrection, and ascension all, all like, telescoped into this one one scene out of the whole story. And I think that's another important signifier of the non-chronological way in which Revelation works is it can, obviously it can presume on the audience's knowledge of the story and then and then redeploy it. It's kind of like, you know, when we, we had our couple episodes back about the Gospel of John and how he could presume knowledge of the synoptic tradition in order to say, okay, I'm telling the same story, but I'm telling it in a slightly different way. So that's why the cleansing of the temple comes early rather than late. So Revelation does that like squared or tripled <laughs> much more dramatically. <laughs> but in order to make it, it's it, it's it's doing things with that, again, in a non-chronological way, but giving you these this different aspects of, of, of vision on the, the deeper story. So here's my question for you. 
Is Uh-oh. this text that you were just talking about a source of the theology of Mary, Queen of Heaven? I I don't understand the leap, quite frankly, <laughs> how that that happens. I mean, she's she is a glorious woman who gives birth, but to like turn that into the I'm sorry, sickeningly sentimental Catholic doctrine of the Queen of Heaven that just does not add up with what Revelation is doing. Well, but I, 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 well, but uh, yeah, well, wait, wait a minute. It's not sick. It's not sickeningly sentimental. It's majestic. Mary is this exalted figure who plays an indispensable role in the in the redemption of the world. No, isn't that exactly what the book of Revelation is suggesting here? Yeah. Dad, you're baiting me. I know that you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's Come the on, last, we it's like the Catholics. La- Don't make me do this. <laughs> uh, it's the last episode of the season, so I think I'm allowed to do a little baiting here and there. <laughs> And besides, the Revo- the book of Revelation is full of bait. Let's go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, my, <clears throat> much of this, what you're saying, indicates to me that the literalistic reading of the book of Revelation is is the most unspiritual reading possible. And that the only possible good reading of Revelation is non-literal. Uh, that is what I like to say, not to demythologize it, but to deliteralize it. Does that sound right to you? Uh, yeah. Why don't you take a little more time to unpack that? I think we've alluded to your distinction between demythologization and deliteralization before, but I think it's so valuable here, especially. Just take us through that a little bit. All right, well, uh, any language to be meaningful has to have some reference. It has to, ref- the, the sign has to have a thing signified. And you can't have a meaningful sign unless you see how it works to point to the thing signified. That's just basic. Uh, if I say uh, uh, gobbledygook instead of the word podcast, and I say to you, let's do a gobbledygook. You would have no idea what the sign gobbledygook is pointing to. Uh, you would be confused. It would be a sign that does not work. But if I say, Sarah, let's record a podcast, you know what in the world I'm talking about. We have to set up these recorders and set up this Skype relationship and set aside a time and prepare uh, to talk for an hour or so. So there's a reference on which meaning matters. Everything that is meaningful has reference, number one. Number two, um, literalists uh, take the references in the Bible uh, in a very modernistic way, uh, and a modernistic way that has antecedents in the historical past, but they take the reference in the Bible to be something in the ordinary human world. It, uh, Gog and Magog must be referring to Russia and, or, or something like that, that. Or even, you know, Babylon must be referring to the Roman Empire or uh, so forth and so on. Uh, the, theological language, however, Ultimately, uh, uh, it uses worldly language 
language of the world, the signs of human language in the world, but its reference is quite unique. Its reference is to the God who comes from God in order to include us in the life of God. It refers to the triune God in his saving acts of creation, redemption, and fulfillment. That's the reference. That's the true reference of all the language in the Bible. And so if you think instead that for this reference to God to be true, uh, you must take the representations, uh, the literal words of Scripture describing uh, uh, things in time and space, as if it were the real, final, ultimate reference, you confuse God and the world. You have to understand that the worldly language of the Bible is doing a unique service. It's been conscripted by God to speak about God for our sakes. And therefore, uh, in our context where biblical literalism constantly gets confused and thinking that the real meaning of Scripture is how it somehow refers to ordinary human history or ordinary events or something like that, or something tangible that we can get a grasp on with our ordinary understanding, instead of this unique act of reference to the God who comes from God to include us in a saving way in the life of God, uh, confuses everything. So in order to capture the true and meaningful reference of Scripture, especially in our context, we have to deliteralize. Now, that's different from demythologizing. Demythologizing destroys the story. It destroys the representations and says they're passé, they can be left behind. They're like the husks that you have to remove to get to the kernel of meat, right? So you just, you do away with them. But here you understand these representations in a unique function as signs that have a theological meaning, a theological reference, teaching us about God. I like that. And what I really like about it is that it doesn't make creation dispensable to the story, but makes it indispensable to the story. Because first of all, your deliteralization motif versus demythologization says that um, the finite can contain the infinite. In fact, one of the, the purposes for which the finite was created is in order to be a vehicle of the infinite. So it's not just that God condescends to use words or images or objects or experiences, but uh, freely and joyfully makes himself known in all these um, smells and sights and sounds and levels of experience that are the, you know, the, the meat and substance of a human life. And that also means that in some way, even in, in uh, being made present in scripture, God freely ties himself to all the things that he has made, just like he does so in the incarnation. So I, I think there can be a, a, a parallelism there between um, God's condescension in the person of Christ and God's condescension in being made known through 
words and signs and experiences, all those things that you have said. And that's why Revelation as such is is a gift with all of its weird and vivid imagery. It's, it's weird and vivid because God knows that's what gets our attention and our attention is valuable to him. <laughs> He's willing to, to, um, to do the things that uh, use those things he has created in order to speak to us who he has created. Um, I, to me, it seems a, a very um, actually um, hopeful and generous sign of God's own self-disclosure, which of course, you know, that's that's what the word revelation or apocalypsis actually means. It's the, the disclosure of what was not, not clear or not known. Yeah, the only uh, slight qualification I would say to that, Sarah, is that we have to be wary of canceling the scandal of particularity. In, in Revelation, God selects, chooses particular images, signs, uh, in human language, words in human language, a particular human individual, Jesus of Nazareth, etc., uh, in order to communicate. Uh, just like in the Lord's Supper, the, the, the words of institution single out this loaf and this cup as the, uh, as the particular worldly signs uh, by which ordinary bread and ordinary wine become uh, the body and blood of Christ for us uh, in, a, in this particular way. So they're, they're, they're ordinary signs of, taken from creation, but they're specially sanctified, specially selected, uh, and taken over by God as vehicles of his saving self-giving and revelation. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I would affirm it all the more strongly. In fact, that that's the point is it's it's these words that, um, but they're they're words that have reference that we can make sense of. So there's that exactly. tying together yeah. of our of our you know our creative created givenness, and then the the disclosure that God intends through these particular words selected out of the abundance of creation. So getting back to the original point of this digression is I was saying that the literalists who are trying to predict the timing of the end of the world on the basis of the book of Revelation and other books in the Bible in some hodgepodge jigsaw puzzle uh, matching that they're making are really the most unspiritual readers of Revelation of all. They're, they're utterly, utterly missing that it is, as you said at the beginning, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of who Jesus is and what he does for us as prophet, priest, and king, and bridegroom, and so forth. And that would be the true and spiritual understanding of the testimony of John of Patmos uh, to the revelations that he received. Great. So let's apply this to some of the violence in the book, because I think that is is a, a scandal for those who, uh, well, it's scandal in the hands of those who rejoice in it. And it's a scandal for those who are turned off by it. But I think using this this approach we're taking, we can uh, navigate between that Scylla and Charybdis. Um, because one of the things Revelation does is it kind of um, leads you on, it baits you, one might say, with the promise of a violent battle to come. And um, so we get to, um, uh, again, to chapter 12, where we're told that there's going to be a, a war in heaven cataclysm. And um, actually, I think we have coming up fairly soon in the lectionary reading about St. Michael, the archangel, 
facing off against the dragon in uh, and we're expecting that we're going to actually see the the battle unfolding. Uh, you'd certainly get that impression from the movies and books about this. But in fact, it takes a verse and a half of revelation for Michael to kick all the bad guys out of heaven, and then it's over. You don't see any battle scene. In fact, you go right over to yet another heavenly chorus singing the praise of Christ. So, you know, so much for that. And then, so that's the end of the, uh, towards, uh, I think it's at the end of the, uh, what we're calling the um, worship, or it's at the very beginning of what, what we're calling the war scroll. And at the very end of the war scroll, we're gearing up for another big battle. This is the one with Gog and Magog and, and Satan, and they're on the battlefield. This is where the word Armageddon comes from. And they're getting ready to make war on the saints. But uh, this time, the enemies are dispensed within four verses, so it takes a little bit longer than St. Michael kicking people out of heaven. But basically, fire from heaven consumes them, they're locked up in the lake of fire, and then, you know, Jesus basically locks death and Hades up in a pit forever and ever, and they'll never get out again. And that's it. <laughs> so for all of the reputation of bloody battle in, in Revelation, there's so little shown. In fact, overwhelmingly, Revelation is chorus and songs and praises. In fact, um, you probably don't realize how many beloved hymns have uh, bits of Revelation in it. Um, this is the feast that was part of the liturgy that I grew up with. That is straight out of that. And... Um, yeah, holy, holy, holy has its it, it, revelation is all over um, hymnody because it is so full of hymns. So I, I, I so so that's one thing that there is actually relatively uh, tiny amount of violence within the book of Revelation itself. But actually, one of the reasons for that is to direct our wariness not towards violent outbursts, but towards deception. This is, I think, Revelation's much greater concern is that basically the bad guys are going to get you not by actually beheading you, but by deceiving you. And one of the most interesting ways that's depicted is with this um, trifecta of um, the um, the beast and the um, the dragon and the false prophets and they're all somehow they all somehow look like each other and they're kind of like the unholy trinity it's this inversion of the threefold goodness that is father son and holy spirit and and even the the original um the beast the reason why he's able to deceive is because somehow vaguely he reminds people of Christ and so they're they're suckered in by him so it's i think this must accord somehow with the platonic notions that evil has no substance of its own, but it's only parasitic or primitive. Right. Something like that is going on here with this, this aping deceptive quality of this trifecta of evil that is drawing people away and luring them in. But then again, the way that in, in more like in, in our time, Christ fights back against that is through his sword, but his sword is actually the word of God. So the the cure for deception is right and truthful words, not bloody battle either. You know, I, that, I find that quite convincing, Sarah, as an overall interpretation. Uh, certainly the, these uh, battles uh, in their brevity that you recount would, would not do for a Marvel action comic book superhero <laughs> movie script would they it no. wouldn't be any fun fun it would just be boom it's over in two minutes and we're not, not the battle that we're expecting um 
But there is a, a chapter towards the end of the book of Revelation in which the violence uh, is quite explicit. Uh, in chapter 18, verse 20 and 21, uh, we read, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, With such violence Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and minstrels and of flutists and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And it continues on in that vein. Um, and the, this chapter 18 begins with another angel uh, coming down from heaven and making the earth uh, brilliant with his splendor. And he called out, now this is the beginning of this chapter 18, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, etc. It continues on, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. And I heard a voice saying, Come out of her, my people, come out of her, so that you not share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has terrible words. God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double draft for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart she says, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Now, this remarkable dirge uh, then depicts um, the, the collapse of trade, uh, the merchants who have lost everything, the shipmasters and seafarers, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea. They cry out as they see the smoke of the city burning. Where is the great city? What has happened to it? Uh, in heaven, the saints are told, uh, or it is said about the saints, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying, Alas, alas, the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. And then the text continues in 1820, Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So I think you're right that the glorification of violence is not to be found in the dramatic pictures um, that we have in the preceding chapters of Revelation. But verse, uh, chapter 18 is quite graphic and quite, and, and quite graphic and it is quite insistent upon divine retribution for the sins of the evil empire, the Babylon, Babylon the Great. So tell, tell me what to make of that. Well, for one thing, maybe I'll be pushing my case too hard and it won't stand up, but let's give it a try. 
I think for one thing is that there are precedents for this dirge or lament over a great fallen city. And it is called Babylon the Great. I think there is a, a tinge of sadness there. I think I got that from Joe Mangina's commentary that this isn't just exulting that the bad guys got taken down. There's something genuinely tragic that happened there. And that is what happened to Nineveh of the Assyrian Empire when the Babylonians invaded. And it is what happened to the historical Babylon when the Persians invaded. And um, no doubt there is some, you know, foresight or expectation that eventually the same will happen to Rome. It didn't happen quite as cleanly as as uh, popular imagination has it. It was more of a internal rot and nibbling at the borders. Um, so that's one thing. I, I also think that what you don't get there really is a picture of supernatural violence. This isn't actually Satan and his devils, and this isn't Gog and Magog, and this isn't the battlefield of Armageddon. This seems to me to be much more about uh, a deep observation about just the tragic drift of great civilizations to, like I said, rot from the inside out and collapse of their own unholy weight. And, you know, at the end, of course, as a, a believer, you're going to have to say there's some judgment of God that has come to bear upon that. But it seems to me it's much more a judgment that comes of too many decades or centuries of defying the basic requirements of justice and refusing to obey the commandments that are common to all people and allowing these things to run amok until finally the whole thing just collapses all at once. So that is God's judgment upon it because it's in defiance of God's good and just ways, but it's not the kind of supernatural picture of violence that I think people tend to associate with Revelation and then gladly export onto the Soviet Union or ISIS or, you know, whatever richly deserving target there may be. Um, I don't think that is the nature of the fall of Babylon that's being described here. And it's not to say that Babylon hasn't done genuinely awful things it has, but it somehow to me reads in a much less supernatural key than the other passages do. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Sarah. And that's an example of deliteralization, what you just explained. Because instead of interpreting the fall of Babylon as a special intervention, a lightning bolt out of heaven causing Babylon to fall in the way that I just read about, it's rather the idea that Paul expresses in Romans 1, that God hands us over, hands sinners over to their own sins. God uh, simply, uh, uh, as Luther put it in the bondage of the will, uh, God does not allow anyone to remain idle. Uh, but if, you, uh, if your will is sinful, if your desires are covetous, if your motives are greed, if your procedures are unjust, uh, God simply drives you into uh, acting out on those uh, evil purposes and Ultimately, evil being destructive becomes self-destructive. In fact, that's what prefaces chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. I'm going to turn the page back here and say what I mean uh, here. Um, um, the, the, the angel says to John, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. 
So God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast. I take that to mean something like what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 1, God hands us over uh, to the evil desires of our hearts, which ultimately prove to be self-destructive. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I think that that is a wonderful connection to make. Um, there's one more deliteralization I'd particularly like to cover before we start wrapping up, and that is the number 144,000. <laughs> Some of you may know that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are premised upon the idea that exactly 144,000 people will be saved, which seems to me like the worst incentive for evangelization ever, because the more people you bring in, the less your statistical chances are of being saved. But um, anyway... But this, again, uh, another way that Revelation trips people up is they think the numbers are arithmetic and not symbols. <laughs> so do not do not do numerological quick tricks with Revelation. They won't add up. They are symbolic the way, you know, like red symbolizes stop in a stoplight. It doesn't have a, a literal uh, arithmetic meaning. But anyway, so in the symbolic language of Revelation, 12, as I already said, means both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And 10 is the number for completion or allness, all of something. So 144,000 then is 12 times 12. So that's all of the Israel symbolized by the 12 tribes and all of the church symbolized by the 12 apostles. And then uh, it's, it's those two times 10 times 10 times 10. So it's everything times everything times everything. So in fact, 144,000 interpreted as a restrictive literal number is exactly the opposite of its symbolic meaning, which is the most inclusive number imaginable. And as further proof of this, right after the 144,000 are mentioned in Revelation, John, the narrator adds, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes <laughs> and peoples and languages. <laughs> so right. there you go. Liter literalism always falls to pieces because it doesn't take into account all of the evidence. And when you read a biblical book like Revelation, if you cherry pick and, and, and just read particular texts that you are construing to have some literal reference to something in human history, rather than theological reference to the will and purpose of the God of the gospel, you're going to be misled in all these ways that we've talked about today. But maybe we should, I think, as we're drawing this to a conclusion here, Sarah, I think we should talk about two, at least two things that one you mentioned earlier. What's a, a fruitful way of, of reading or using the book of Revelation? Uh, in that would accord with its intentions, as we've laid out today. What would that be? And also, I think we should give some attention to the conclusion of the book of Revelation, chapters 19 and 20 to 21, which are these uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, depictions of the, of the eternal victory of God and the mutual indwelling of God and his people forever and ever, uh, one of the texts that inspires me to talk about salvation as beloved community. 
Great. Well, let's do the first first <laughs> that you suggested. So uh, I think on a previous episode, I had this little outburst that I was neither a post-millennialist nor a pre-millennialist. I'm an amillennialist. All of these, these millennialisms, also dispensationalism, are theories of history. And um, listeners, if you don't know me by now, <laughs> how much I hate theories of history. Let me state it clearly. I hate theories of history. They are always... <laughs> deployed to evil purposes because basically you can excuse anything on the grounds that, well, at this hour of history, this is okay because I'm in the right and they're in the wrong, or we have to suspend what is right and good and just because circumstances require it. And I find it particularly odious in religious people. And I'm sorry, Luther, um, this this for me is in your top 10 sins. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't always like this, but when he got panicked, he also reverted to this fear that the world was ending soon. And whenever I hear anyone be religiously motivated by the prospect that they know where they are in history or God is doing a new thing or something is moving that, you know, we're, we're supposed to expect something. I mean, I, I think it's both spiritually corrupting and will sooner or later involve a request for money. So anyway, that's my warning but to y'all. Sarah, 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 don't you want to be found on the right side of history? No, I want to be found by Jesus wherever I am. <laughs> and as a sinner, I'm almost certainly going to be on the wrong side of history. So it's a bad choice, people. You know, it's it's really deep. I mean, it starts with Justin Martyr and um, even Irenaeus played around with it. And you know how much we like Irenaeus. But here, let me just quote this from, from Irenaeus. He says very plainly, after all of his speculations, it is therefore more certain and less hazardous, hazardous to await the fulfillment of the prophecy than to be making surmises and casting about for any names that may present themselves inasmuch as many names can be found possessing the number mentioned. And the same question will, after all, remain unsolved. So, huh. um... Anyway, so anyway, so to, to clarify, premillennialism is the, the tribulation and rapture stuff of popular so-called Christian fiction. Post-millennialism is the idea that um, every day and every way we're getting better and better and we will bring in the kingdom by our efforts and social justice activism. And um, and then there's amillennialism. That's what I am. <laughs> and an amillennialist says, it's not literal. <laughs> we cannot read <laughs> Revelation or any prophecies of the end as giving us a chronological timeline that we can discern and therefore put ourselves on the right side of. But in fact, we have to trust in God to do things in his own way. And after all, our Lord tells us that when he comes, he will come like a thief in the night. And yet even he does not know when that will be. So if Jesus doesn't know it, for heaven's sake, neither do we. Uh, but here is actually my my Lutheran basis for being an amillennialist. There is sort of a an allusion to something like that in, in the Augsburg Confession. Um, dispensationalism was not as well developed at the time, so it isn't an out, it doesn't perfectly accord, but I can't remember what article, but it basically warns against any um, delusions about the millennial kingdom. But then uh, in Luther's small catechism, in the second and third petitions, he's taking up thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And uh, also recently I complained that I had no place for the kingdom of God because of how much both pre and post millennialism corrupted it. So I forgot here, Luther has the answer in the catechism. When does the kingdom come? When our heavenly father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace, we believe his holy word and live hallowed lives in harmony with it 
here in time and in heaven hereafter. And then when does God is God's will done? When God breaks and blocks every evil will and counsel that wants us to unhallow his name and wants his kingdom not to come like the will of the devil, the world and our own weak flesh. And when God strengthens and secures us in his word and in our faith until our last hour, this is his good and gracious will. So those are the most amillennialist answers you could possibly get to God's kingdom and God's will. They are not making any predictions or prophecies or timelines or anything of the course. It's saying that this is in God's hands. And I would go so far as to say all times are God's times and all places are God's places. And we see it sometimes more clearly than others. And that's why we need something like revelation to give us the stereoscopic vision. For example, when we are suffering and it's hard to see how this is God's time and place, or when we are overweening in our pride and accomplishments and think we are more in God's time and place now and here than other suckers at other points on the globe or other times in history. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess I would just slightly tweak what you said and say all times can be God's time. And Whether they are, in fact, God's time depends on God, who comes, whose kingdom comes, uh, where and when it pleases God. Uh, The gospel comes, comes. It's not a present possession that's just there. It's an event that takes place. It's a coming that, uh, like I said earlier, comes as an incision, cutting through the fog and friction of the life in, in, in our fallen world and affects this uh, doing of the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. So everything you said with that uh, slight qualification. Maybe we're coming at it from two different angles because so to pick on like a really obvious one, like North Korea does not seem to be a place where the gospel is getting much of a voice right now. But I wouldn't therefore say North Korea is not ultimately God's. I would still say North Korea is God's uh, God's land and creation and people. And however little they are allowed to know that it is nevertheless in God's hands. I think the second you start saying that North Korea is godless and void of the gospel and all of God's promises, then you immediately license in in human beings the right to do something about that, which might be very ungodly. That that's my concern. That's your concern, but I'm well, I guess I'm concerned about the truth of chapter eighteen, uh, and I'm not so much worried about the obvious case of North Korea. I'm much more worried about the ways in which our United States of America uh, may be Babylon the Great. Uh, maybe. I'm not saying it is. Maybe. It seems to me the text of the book of Revelation holds out that possibility. We should not presume that our America is a Christian nation where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. We should rather assume that here, as in North Korea, the word of God, the gospel of God, comes as an incision cutting through our illusions and the demonic deceptions, particularly the demonic deceptions we have of our own righteousness. I wouldn't disagree with that. I guess I would say that the to me the whole scriptural story is that all of creation is God's and yet all of creation sins against God's. So I, I think if you only say one one side of that equation, you get an incomplete story. If you bring them both together, you get the the full the full vision. Okay. One example of the right way to read the book of Revelation I'd like to just mention briefly is my 
uh, Slovak Lutheran bishop, theologian, hero, Samuel Stefan Osuski, uh, who in 1942, 41, wrote uh, a commentary on the book of Revelation, Konyat Sveta, The End of the World, was the title. And you have to bear in mind, Slovakia has become a puppet state of Nazi Germany. In 1941, the swastika flies victorious from the Atlantic Wall uh, in France, north to Norway, south to northern Africa, and on the outskirts of Moscow to the east. Uh, it certainly seems that the world has been taken over by the great beast and the false prophet and so forth and so on. And Osuski writes a commentary on the book of Revelation to preach its message of comfort and consolation to the persecuted and martyrs suffering under the apparent victory of the swastika, uh, the victory of the swastika over the cross of Jesus. And I think that's exactly the right kind of application of the book of Revelation, where we use it to discern modestly, humbly, but faithfully the signs of our own times and insert into that dire uh, situation of persecution and martyrdom the great promise that the martyrs are not lost to God, but immediately translated into the, his presence and glory, where they pray on behalf of their persecuted sisters and brothers on the earth, how long, O Lord, how long, come to the rescue of your people. Well, that, I mean, that is, I think, what Revelation was written for. It was written primarily for those people. And as I said earlier, the rest of us are allowed to eavesdrop and, um, and take what wisdom and, and strength and comfort we can from it. Well, I think there's no better way to then end this episode and the season than with uh, a reading from the very end of Revelation. So why don't you select one for us? Yeah, I think as, as cyclical and nonlinear as the book of Revelation is, there is an aspect of linearity in the conclusion to the book of Revelation because it's a promise and a vision of the final victory of God after uh, the final defeat of all the evil powers thrown into the bottomless pit and, and uh, abandoned forever. Then uh, uh, in chapter 21, uh, John writes, Then, after death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the death of death and hell's destruction uh, has taken place. The negation of the negation has been victoriously accomplished. And now it is time for the wedding feast of God and the Lamb. <clears throat> and uh, chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain 
will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne cried out, See, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the springs of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. All right. Go forth and do apocalyptically likewise. Oh, there will be a few bonus episodes coming up um, in December to see you through. And we will start season four sometime in January. A very blessed Christmas and happy new year to you all. From me too, to all of you. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.